This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. Dr. King is also the director of benign gynecologic surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message. This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific. So I'm thrilled to have Dr. Marie Fidela Perezo on our episode today. She is a staff physician in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Cleveland Clinic, where she also serves as a section head of the Center for Urogynecology and Reconstructive Pelvic Surgery. Additionally, Dr. Perezo holds a joint appointment in the Cleveland Clinic Urological Institute, and not to mention that she is also our current president of AAGL. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Perezo. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I know you are busy. I know you're between cases. So again, we're thrilled to have you. So I was hoping to get your opinion and tap your brain about the current status of the MeSH updates. I know there's been a lot of change over the past couple of months. And so I was hoping to get the most hot off the press updates from you. But to start, I was wondering, could you take us back a couple of months for when this announcement came out this past April that led to all of this discussion within the FPRMS world? Can you talk me through um, the announcement that came out in April and what that's done for us? Well, what happened was in April, the FDA put a black box warning on all vaginal mesh products that were used for pelvic organ prolapse surgeries. And so what happened was it took off the available, what we would have called mesh kits off the market because of a congressional mandate. So after the 522 studies were requested by the FDA and those were in process, Uh, Specifically, we had one through the Pelvic Floor Disorders Network called the Super Trial, which was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So Charlie Nager from University of California, San Diego, is the primary investigator for that, and I was one of the co-authors. And in that trial, we compared native tissue repair, including hysterectomy, which meant vaginal hysterectomy with uterosacral ligament vaginal vault suspension, opopexy, and other repairs versus the vaginal mesh procedure, which was the uphold procedure, which is a mesh that is passed through the sacrospinous ligaments bilaterally and attached to the vesicle fascia bilaterally, sort of simulating a repair of vaginal perivaginal repair and apical suspension bilaterally. That was long-term follow-up of over three years in all patients. And so what we found was that there was no difference between the groups. And 
actually the patients were blinded to hysterectomy. And so the results of those studies showed that vaginal mesh repair with uterine preservation was similarly successful compared to hysterectomy and uterosacral vaginal vault suspension with native tissue with similar percentages of adverse events at long-term follow-up. Well, it would have been preferred that the vaginal mesh procedures were better than the native tissue repairs because then there would have been shown to be a superiority as compared to performing the native tissue repairs. Right. And having said that, the thought process was, you know, there have been some complications, significant complications reported by patients who have had vaginal mesh implants. These patients have experienced severe pain at the sites of the implants. Many of them have had dyspareunia. Some of them have had chronic pelvic pain. And even if the mesh implants are removed and many of the mesh implants were difficult to remove. However, you can't compare apples with oranges and the best studies were done with the uphold procedure in the form of randomized prospective trials with long-term follow-up. So just to clarify, there's different types of mesh. So the mid-urethral sling mesh, that is completely fine. The cervical copalpexy mesh that you can place abdominal or laparoscopically, that's fine as well. We're talking about just transvaginal mesh right now. Is that correct? Correct. We're only talking about transvaginal mesh for pelvic organ prolapse. Additionally, in regard to the FDA, the slings for stress urinary incontinence and the cervical copalpexy meshes for pelvic organ prolapse are FDA approved with significant evidence that they are curative mm-hmm. and associated with acceptable serious adverse effects. Yes. Okay, good. I think it's a really important differentiation that um, I think is important that everybody understands. So that's great. Thank you. So is using this free cut mesh for transvaginal use, is that is that considered illegal now? Like can people still use that mesh? I think People can still use that mesh. However, it's not approved by the FDA. And furthermore, you have to have extensive informed consent with your patient as well as a patient-centered plan. So it's best to give your patient all of the options. And if the vaginally implanted mesh is acceptable to the patient, even though there aren't any currently approved vaginal mesh devices for pelvic organ prolapse, then they can go forward. Some people are self-fashioning grafts. I have done that for one patient specifically who did not have a desire for me to open her abdomen because she had had a lot of ventral hernia repairs, and so she had extensive mesh implant of her anterior abdominal wall. She had failed her own tissue, and so she wanted something that would be long-lasting for her, and so she wanted me to operate by the vaginal route. And so I fashioned 
Amesh and her obviously giving her extensive informed consent. And I just saw her yesterday and she is so very happy with the results of her prolapse repair. And compared to, you know, an uphold procedure that I could do in less than 45 minutes, that procedure with all the placements of stitches and the sacrospinous ligament and the arcus tendineus fascia pelvis and a self-fashioned mesh, that procedure took me at least half an hour to 45 minutes longer. So I've almost doubled my operative time and I used to self-fashion mesh, but this mandate has taken an option off of the market for patients that has been shown in well-designed trials with long-term follow-up to be safe and effective. That's frustrating, isn't it? When in the right hands, it can be completely safe, right? With the right counseling and the right hands. But when that price is taken away from you, it, it limits your patients. It really it limits your patients and what they can choose to have. Well, it certainly limits your options. And say, for instance, for physicians who perform those procedures all the time, they, they were quite good at those procedures with very uh, few complications. And it's disconcerting because now we have very good data, excellent data to support that vaginal mesh pelvic organ prolapse procedures are safe and efficacious. So it sounds like in the right hands, high volume surgeons, people who do this all the time, their outcomes are improved than people who don't do this all of the time. Yes, they have to have adequate training. They have to have adequate surgical volume. And they have to have adequate experience in procedures that are similar and put them in the same spaces to operate. And so I think that it was a very important procedure in armamentarium and and something that I would offer patients who had failed their own tissue and for some reason, such as in the inflammatory bowel disease with many bowel adhesions or as I had stated, that patient with mesh that was all along her anterior abdominal wall um, or patients who can't undergo general anesthesia outside of an open procedure, this Vaginal mesh was a great uh, procedure for for patients who uh, wanted vaginal route pelvic organ prolapse surgery with something that could be more durable. I mean, mm-hmm. we have not followed up those patients at 10 to 15 years, so we don't know uh, if one is better than the other or if they're going to continue along the same trajectory of uh, outcomes. So in regard to, to um, credentialing providers, how are providers currently credentialed to, to perform these surgeries? So nobody's being credentialed <laughs> now. I would say that for us, you know, in high volume centers um, and patient people who have been trained and have adequate volume, one study that I had said, the super trial, I had already discussed that, but there's also a public floor disorders network trial called the ASPIRE trial, which compared minimally invasive sacral copropexy to native tissue repair, which would be a sacrospinous fixation or uterocycle vaginal vault suspension, copropexy compared to a uphold hysteropexy. So 
sort of the two arms that were in the super trial and the third arm being the minimally invasive sacroalpopexy, so robotic or laparoscopic assist. Mm-hmm. And we're in the midst of analyzing those data, but the study had been fully enrolled. So more to come soon. Yes, more to come. (laughs) It would be really a travesty not to use our good science and allow um, patients to have an option if they were in need of these procedures. So we wouldn't have to bash and mash or use biologic graphs, which by and large have not been shown to be as effective as synthetic graphs. And so that's the quandary here. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, patients should have options. Patients should have options that might be safer for them compared to uh, having abdominal route surgery or having failure within their native tissue. And so I am not discounting the fact that there were some complications, but by and large, the companies that were charged with doing the 522 studies after the FDA mandate in 2008, 2011, after those were mandated and um, companies were to move forward with doing 522 studies, there was a lot of money and time put into these investigations so that we could improve our care for patients who need surgery for pelvic organ prolapse and show them that there were data to prove safety and efficacy. Right. Driven by data. Yeah. I want to congratulate you and your entire team for doing the research to get this data out there. I think it's so important that we're we're making decisions based off of off of evidence, right? So I, I really thank you and your team for um, for publishing and, and and getting good data out there for us to make our decisions on. Well, we are very fortunate to be part of these networks. We actually are a site that are not in the new studies, but we were in the Public Floor Disorders Network, uh, which is an NICHE-funded group. We are in that for two cycles, which was approximately 10 years. And it was a great experience, and I really think that we did a lot of landmark trials while we were part of that group um, that changed clinical management and improved healthcare for our patients. Our group is a fair amount of prospective trials and have published them and have been early innovators, but mostly early studiers of cutting edge type procedures. And so it's been a great opportunity for me to impact patient care on multiple levels besides working at the Cleveland Clinic and also working with our society. So it's been great collaborating with other people and you can't you simply cannot do prospective randomized trials unless you have high volume so that you meet the power for your study you need numbers right that's great pushing the envelope all the time that's why i love working with you i'm so lucky i get to share an office wall with you i can see you right from my office door it's amazing (laughs) 
Well, you know, I think that our next road at the Cleveland Clinic is to collaborate with uh, our FPMRS and MIGS groups and embark on really great prospective trials or prospective randomized trials. We could we could be the really the the nidus for igniting excellent research in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery for public work and benign gynecology. I would love that. You're right. Join forces, right? Just we're all we're all working in the same space with advanced surgery and uh, I agree. Collaborate. That's how that's how you really make things happen. That's that's a great idea. Yep. So we can improve care for our patients over the long run. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by MedJobNetwork.com. Ready to start your career in your dream location? Looking to expand your skills in a dynamic new practice setting? Start your search today at MedJobNetwork.com. MedJobNetwork.com sorts thousands of physician job opportunities in every specialty and all 50 states. Visit us once, create a profile, then let our technology bring the right jobs to you. There's no need to search again and again. MedJobNetwork.com does all the work for you. It's time to take that next step. There's a great new career opportunity waiting for you at MedJobNetwork.com. So I want to switch gears just for one moment since we're flying to Vancouver in a day. Because you're the president. You're the big wig. What are you most excited for? What are you most excited for for this week? You know, it is so wonderful to, uh, I'm writing my, or finishing touches on the presidential speech, but to look back on how much we've accomplished in the last three years, three years is amazing. And then I also had to look back since my very first presentation at AAGL, which was video in 1996. And so I think the fact that AAGL is a family and it's a larger family and approximately 50% of our members are international. We are approximately 7,300 to 7,500 members strong. uh, And we represent 107 countries. Wow just amazing and on last count we were close to 1800 attendees wow i'm looking forward to sharing my friendships with my husband and my son my daughter can't come because she's in her first year of college and my three sisters who really supported me throughout my life my career and to be able to share that introduce them to my friends in the society also, too, Jubilee Brown has designed an excellent program. I feel about it. The science is better. Uh, as happened with my program, we have extensive participation uh, internationally across ages, across genders, um, across subspecialties. And so it's really a time to celebrate all factions of minimally invasive gynecology and to learn from each other and to 
impart this knowledge and expertise globally. So it's a very exciting time. That's that's so exciting, right? And you're such a, you're, you're creating such an inclusive environment and taking the silos down of this is MIGS and this is Eurogyne and this is Gynonk and just bringing everyone together for just good solid you know solid um, evidence based medicine and 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 sound surgical technique. I can't wait. I'm really excited. It is. It's you know our uh, fellowship in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, which for us it's our first year here at the Cleveland Clinic. FMIGS is the most popular and coveted fellowship at the present time in OBGYN, so that's exciting. There are 46 fellowships and two international fellowships at the present time. We're collaborating more with FMIGS. We have a, a I instituted a uh, every four to six weeks call between the executive and uh, executive boards for AGL and FMIGS. We're the baby that was born after the uterine transplant that was performed by Shailash Punta Bekar is over one year of age, turned number turned one at, on October 18th. Um, so uterine transplant is part of the agenda. Also, uh, there's exciting game of zones. And um, my partner, our partner, Cecile Ferrando, Mm-hmm. is also uh, presenting on gender affirmation surgery, and so that's exciting. Um, you know, there's a lot of great stuff in the AGL. We, again, have the Internet um, International School of Surgical Anatomy, ISSA, headed by uh, Marcello Ceccaroni, and also the International Society on Neuropelviology, and that's uh, Mark Passover. And so... We, we have many, many groups, many societies that we collaborate with, um, and we are just such a fortunate society. We can, we can change healthcare for women, and we can spread that expertise all over the world. And so that, that to me, is the most exciting. It's powerful. I'm just curious. You said your first presentation was in 1996 at AEGL. That is amazing. I love that. Did you have any idea that you'd be where you are right now in 2019? Like, did you did you always have this goal of being, you know, the, the head of AGL? I'm just curious. Well, um, so I've always aspired for leadership, but it's funny. In residency, like, I had seen, you know, the big wigs talk. Um, I was at a conference where CY Lou and I believe – uh, Harry Rich and Arnaud Vatier and um, I think Cameron Najat was there. I'm not absolutely sure, but that was in, I was a, a Wyatt Eric's reporter program in 1992. And um, I thought to myself, I'm watching these guys operate. And, you know, Harry had just, the LABH was three years, three years old at that time, right? Right. And, um, I just thought, you know what? I would love to be there and be able to operate like them. And I had a strong mix bent in residency. And so I went, I did a fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic, which was advanced pelvic surgery and also um, urogynecology and reconstructive pelvic surgery, which included colorectal and urology training as well. And that ended in 96. And that's when I, I was Maso Falcone's first fellow 
But I look back then, and I remember Andy Brill saying to me, you need to present your videos and your academic work here in order to participate in these meetings and really enrich AAGL. And so I set forth to do that, and I've been fortunate to have the village I have and the opportunities at the Cleveland Clinic to uh, really support my academic career. And I've been a professor now since 2010. And so um, you have to have, you have to have a supportive environment, collaborators that are just ex as excited to do that type of work with you. Um, obviously the surgical and patient volume to enter into the trials and um, it was a, just a great time. And so I'm meandering here, but I did see myself as president of AGL. I remember when, you know, I was watching Barb Levy um, on the stage and then Linda Bradley and Grace Janik, one after the other. And I thought, you know, I, I could be president of AAGL too. And so getting to lead with the people that I'm getting to lead now, Jubilee Brown and I are, are such great friends. We have great respect for each other. And, and the time has been right for us to be in leadership together. We, we work well together with uh, Gary Frischman and Ted Lee, uh, Linda Michaels, Linda Bradley. It's been, I have, I'm not going to say it hasn't been without its challenges, but it has been a great time for me to spread my wings and work with such wonderful people in a great society that could, we, we haven't even tapped our, even probably a 25% of our potential. And so we can really grow to be the best organization for gynecologic surgery in the world if we aren't already, but we have work to do. Mm -hmm. We have work to do, we have to work on uh, excellence in minimally invasive gynecology, our EMIG program, we have to work on um, our research, we have to work for our fellowships to gain more research. We're going into focus-centered practice and meeting with the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. We have a meeting with uh, EGO also at this meeting. We, we have a lot going on. We've got uh, trials comparing two platforms to evaluate minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. And I didn't want to say too much about that. So that <laughs> stop <one>. there. <laughs> yeah, table it. Um, more to come, right? Yeah, I hear you. And AHL, it's better than anything else. <laughs> meetings where I've ever been. I mean, to have friends all around the world and to get to visit each other and, and show each other our hospitals and we go into each other's operating rooms and learn from each other and collaborate and join each other's cultures. That That is the richness of the AAGL. Yeah. You know, you're saying these names that they mean so much to me, like um, like Grace Janik and Linda Bradley and Jubilee Brown and yourself. It's just been amazing to have you guys 
um, lead us young female surgeons and um, and building the tribe that you built for us. I just I remember presenting one of my first videos. It was must have been back in 2012 or 2013 at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. It was one of Dr. Ted Lee's videos. I was um, his fellow. I remember getting up to the podium. It was about sacral copalpexy and uh, pelvic anatomy. And I saw you walk up to the mic when my video was done. And you just hammered some questions at me about the sacral, the presacral space and the sacral copalpexy. I just remember being so enamored by you and just just knowing that I one day I wanted to be like you, Dr. Parezo. I wanted to be able to be confident at the mic. Um, and you've left such an impression on me. And it's, um, again, just thank you for, for leading us the way you've led us. I, I truly appreciate your guidance in all of this. Well, you're welcome. I'm just going to tell you, you guys are our legacy. We have a strong legacy Oh, rock stars, it's awesome <laughs> to see so many people invigorated at these meetings. Um, you guys are doing amazing things. We were just starting off, and then now, like, it, you know, I want to attend our meetings. Like, last year, I wanted to attend almost every session, but I was up at 4 in the morning getting my scripts together and making sure everything was going to work for the general sessions. Right. Um, when you're behind the scenes, it is a tremendous amount of work it's a like a real production and and you don't know it until you've been scientific program chair and you're always doing a great job but it it it, 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 uh, it is a mountain of work and you need a village of people to bring off this meeting and so this year i'm honoring our aagl staff at the end of my presidential um address because uh, there are people that we should know very readily because they've touched every aspect of the Global Congress, and we should honor them because, you know, we stand on their shoulders. They're, they're multipliers of us, so it's, it's great. It's great to be able to honor them. That's so true. When things go smoothly, there's about a million people behind the scenes making that happen. So that's awesome that you're, that you're acknowledging all those people. That's great. All right, Dr. Prezo, I think that concludes our our talk today. Thank you again for spending your afternoon with us. We really appreciate your time, and you've offered tremendous insight on both MeSH updates as, uh, as well as the upcoming AGL meeting. So thank you. And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.